Where do you go when you hear a tornado siren? Whether it be a siren atop a pole in your neighborhood or the way so many of our phones just turn into sirens depending on how you have them configured or, or maybe the, the inbreaking of the weatherman for those of you who have televisions on in the home. Where do you go when you hear those warnings? Do you have a place prepared in your home? A storm closet, maybe. How quickly can you get in and secure the door behind you? When was the last time that you used it? Have you ever used it? How did you respond to the last warning that you heard? I've seen research indicating that, that most people don't do anything in response to tornado warnings until they receive a message from at least three or more different sources. Why is that? Why do we ignore the warnings? Is it because we think that a tornado can't harm us or, or can't harm our home? Well, no, it's because we don't believe that the tornado will actually come. We've come to assume that every warning is probably just a, a false alarm. The same, of course, is, is largely true of those who live on the coast in regard to, to hurricane or to tsunami warnings. And those in other parts of the world who live near volcanoes in regard to eruption warnings, earthquake warnings, wildfire warnings, flood warnings, and so on. But not every warning is a false alarm. One report indicates that between 2014 and 2022, that nine-year span, our state experienced more weather-related deaths than any other state in the nation. There is great danger in assuming that every warning is just a, a false alarm. I invite you to turn with me to, to Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. You can find it on page 5 in the Pew Bible. This is week 2 of, of a four-part series for Advent titled The Promise, in which we're, we're going back to the beginning, back to the beginning to trace both the need for and the promise of the Advent of Christ. That is, the need for and the promise of a Savior who will reverse the curse upon creation. Having looked at the beginning of that need and the first giving of that promise in Genesis 3.15 last week, we're picking up the account in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5 today. I'm going to begin by reading through verse 8. Hear the word of the Lord to you. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, as we come to your word this morning, teach us the importance of hearing and of heeding that word, hearing and heeding the warning. Bless the preaching of your word. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Well, last week, uh, we left off with the, the first man and the, and the first woman cast out of the Garden of Eden, ca cast out of God's dwelling presence on the earth cast out for having ignored God's warning. 
His warning not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, having declared for themselves the ability and the right to determine what is good and evil, what is right and wrong, irrespective of what God has said. And yet, despite that calamity of humanity being cast out of God's presence, there there was hope. There was a note of hope at the end of chapter 3. Before casting them out of His presence, before cutting off their access to the tree of life and thus guaranteeing their eventual death, God took the life of an animal. And He covered Adam and Eve's nakedness with the animal's skin. And He promised that despite the terrible curse that they had brought upon the world, Eve would bear children, and that one of her offspring would one day defeat Satan. Adam demonstrated faith in this promise by naming his wife Eve. Eve sounds like the Hebrew for life giver. And so then with that in our minds, as we turn to chapter 4, we read the record of the first two human births at the beginning of chapter 4, we're, we're hopeful. We're hopeful that one of these two men, Cain or Abel, will be the one to lift the curse. But then, shockingly, the older brother murders the younger brother. So that the first death of a human being is not because of disease or decay or disaster, but because of depravity. This is then sadly followed by the record of the next six generations of the murderer of Cain, leading to a man named Lamech who boasts in his own wickedness, declaring that his bloodlust exceeds that of his forefather Cain. However, despite mankind's moral degeneracy as evidenced in this line of men from Cain, chapter 4, like chapter 3, ends with a note of hope. Much like chapter 3 ended with the faith-filled naming of Eve, chapter 4 ends with the faith-filled naming of Eve's third son, Seth. See, Seth sounds like the Hebrew word for appointed, and Eve declares, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel. Thus showing that Adam and Eve are still expecting the promised offspring to come. In fact, quote, at that time, the birth of Seth, people began to call upon the name of the Lord, says in 426. That is, people began to pray, to express their humble dependence upon their Creator, their need for His mercy and His grace, to pray for their need for a Savior. So, as we read chapter 4, we we get to the end and we think, okay, is Seth that promised Savior? Is he the promised offspring of Adam and Eve who will lift the curse? No. Chapter 5 records that like his father Adam before him, Seth eventually dies and the curse remains upon creation. So too then does Seth's son Enosh die, and Enosh's son Kenan, and Kenan's son Mahalalel, and so on it goes. This is the emphasis of the genealogy of Seth recorded in chapter 5. By only naming one of the sons of each of the ten listed generations, anticipation is being built for the coming of the promised offspring. Only for one generation then to pass into the, the next without the promise being fulfilled. Instead, death continues to reign. With one exception in the middle there, in the seventh generation of the ten listed, a man named Enoch is described as having, quote, walked with God for at least the last 300 years of his life. And and suddenly, he was not, it says, for God took him. Meaning that Enoch was taken out of this life 
without experiencing death. And while that leaves us with many questions, clearly this extremely unusual event is recorded for a reason. As one writer put it, uh, this teaches us that communion with God, walking with God, results in escape from death. And yet, even after Enoch's translation into the eternal presence of God without death, the curse still remains behind him here on the earth. Enoch's son Methuselah dies, and Methuselah's son Lamech, a different Lamech, dies. But like chapter 3 and like chapter 4, chapter 5 ends on a note of hope with the faith-filled naming of Lamech's son Noah. Noah sounds like the Hebrew word for relief or rest. And his father declares, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief. This one shall bring us rest. Thus showing that even hundreds of years after the giving of the promise, at least one person on the earth is still expecting a promised offspring to come who will lift the curse upon creation. So that the narrator, having narrowly focused on a few specific individuals, such as wicked Lamech from Cain's line and faith-filled Lamech from Seth's line, well, chapter 6 then zooms out from these individuals to, to now consider the full breadth of humanity. Turns out that Seth and Enoch and Lamech and Noah, well, they're exceptions to the rule. It's Cain and his crew, born as spiritual offspring of the serpent that are the norm. Looking again at verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's the plight of mankind. It's not that we are as evil as we possibly could be. No, in in His grace, God restrains the sin of our hearts to to varying degrees through various means. Not just through law and government, though that's one means that God restrains the evil of our hearts, but He also restrains the evil of our hearts through our conscience, through God's moral law written on our hearts. So we read about in Romans 2. It's only after we continually go against our conscience that our conscience increasingly becomes seared, to use the language of 1 Timothy 4.2, as God gradually removes His restraint upon our hearts and gives us over to a debased mind, to use the language of Romans 1.28. God restrains our evil, but as we go against our consciences, eventually we are given over to that evil. So it's not that we are as evil as we possibly could be, but rather what Genesis 6, 5 is saying is that there's no thought within us, no deed that we do that is not in some way tainted, some way tainted by sin. Because by nature, we are self-serving and proud. By nature, we're bent on believing that God's ways are not best for us. That we have the prerogative to decide for ourselves what is best, what is right and wrong, what is good and evil, just like Adam and Eve did. Like father, like son, like mother, like daughter. That seems to be the point of chapter 5, verse 3, when it notes that Seth, the third son of Adam, was fathered in Adam's own likeness after Adam's image. Rather than the likeness and image of God in which Adam was created, we are born in the sin-tainted image of our fallen forefather, Adam. We are born, quote, in sin, as David puts it in Psalm 51 
Or as Paul puts it in Ephesians 2, 3, we are by nature children of wrath. We are sinners. It's not that we are declared to be sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. This touches all of us. The curse upon our hearts touches us all. No one is immune to this. As we'll see in chapter 9, even Noah, even Noah, who's described as he's introduced as a righteous man, blameless in his generation, the one who walked with God, much like his great-grandfather Enoch, even Noah is not without sin. For all have sinned and fall short to the glory of God. Romans 3.23 It's purely by God's grace that any of us are not fully given over to our sin. It's purely by God's grace that we can be granted power over that sin. Skipping ahead for a moment to, to verse 11 of chapter 6. Chapter 6, verse 11. It says, Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh. For the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Humanity's sin requires God's judgment. Humanity's sin requires God's judgment. The earth is no less filled with violence today. The last century was the bloodiest century in human history. It's estimated that more than 230 million people were killed in the wars and genocides of the 20th century alone. 230 million. And that doesn't even include the likely equivalent number of infanticide, the deliberate murder of preborn children in their mother's womb. And little has changed in the first 23 years of this century. War rages all around us. Just look at the, the horrors of what Hamas orchestrated in their gruesome attacks on Israel on October 7th. It's too sickening to even describe in a gathering like this. Even in our supposedly civilized modern nation, we have large groups today calling for the literal genocide of people they don't like, with university presidents defending those calls for murder. The infanticide continues as well, even here in states like Texas, with poison pills easily ordered online and shipped right to your doorstep. The earth is filled with violence. All flesh has corrupted their way. And like the blood of Abel, the voice of the blood of our neighbors cries to the Lord from the ground, demanding justice. Humanity deserves to be blotted out. This is the sober reality that we are meant to learn from this devastating act of God's judgment upon humanity's sin in Genesis chapter 6. Continuing verse 14, God says to Noah, Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. An ark. Uh, the Hebrew word for ark, it doesn't mean boat. There's really no Hebrew word for boat. It just means box. The only other occurrence of this word in the Bible is when it's used to describe the basket in which Moses' mother placed him as a baby. Remember, the, the Pharaoh had demanded that all Israelite males be cast into the Nile River at their birth. But Moses' little ark preserved his life, leading to the preservation of the life of his people. God continues, 
Genesis 6, verse 14, make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. That's tar, tar of some kind, just like Jacob had used when building Moses' little ark. Verse 15, this is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits, and its height, 30 cubits. So apparently this equates to, to 450 feet long by 75 feet wide by 45 feet high. So in length, it's like one and a quarter football fields, including the end zone, one and a quarter football fields, about half the width of a football field, and the height of a four to five story building. Very large. Verse 16. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. So with three decks, that's over 100,000 square feet of deck space. So two and one-thirds acre. And if the roof was able to serve as a fourth deck, well, that'd make it over three acres in size. Room for, quote, two of every sort of bird and land animal, as we see at the end of the chapter. Verse 17. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. And so it happened. This was no false alarm. The warned about flood actually did come. Skipping ahead for a moment to, to chapter 7, verse 11, it says this. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth below. and The windows of heaven were opened from above and rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. Verse 17. The flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The water prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep, a couple feet. And all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground. Man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, they were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. So it's a near total reversal of the six days of creation. With the death of all living creatures, we see a reversal of days five and six of creation. With, with the recovering of the dry land and all vegetation being covered in water, all the dry land and the, and the vegetation that had emerged on day three, well, creation has been taken back to the state that it was after day two, a world of nothing but water, threatening a total uncreation of existence. That's what humanity deserves. Complete uncreation, annihilation. But, begins the next verse, chapter 8, verse 1, but God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. 
and God made a wind blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. So the reversal is halted. The decreation stops short of complete annihilation, and suddenly a recreation begins to take place in chapter 8. The parallels uh, with the first account of creation in Genesis 1 and this recreation account in Genesis 8 are numerous and undeniable. I want to show you a few of them. As in the first few verses of chapter 1, so too in the first few verses of chapter 8, waters cover the face of the earth. As the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters in chapter 1, so too God made a wind blow over the waters in chapter 8, with the word spirit and the word wind being the same word, ruah. As the dry land emerged on day 3 of creation, so too it re-emerged as the floodwaters subsided in chapter 8. As birds appeared in the skies on day five and other animals appeared on the dry land on day six, so too birds and and animals reappeared as they came forth from the ark. Chapter eight. As God blessed the first humans with a mission to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth in chapter one, so too, quote, God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Chapter nine, verse one. So yes, humanity's sin calls for God's judgment. But in His grace, God provides a way of salvation for His people. Humanity's sin calls for God's judgment, but in His grace, God provides a way of salvation for His people. Recall how how chapter 6 began that I I read with at the beginning. Sandwiched, Sandwiched right in between two blocks about God having determined to make an end of all flesh is verse 8 of chapter 6. But, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. It's the first occurrence of that word for favor in the Bible. It's the same word elsewhere translated as grace. God set His grace upon Noah, thereby preserving the human race, preserving life on earth, preserving the offspring of Adam and Eve. But notice what was required of Noah. What was required of him in order to benefit from that offer of grace? Not just obedience to do all that God commanded him to do, as verse 22 puts it, but something else had to precede, something else had to motivate and sustain that obedience. Noah had to have faith, faith in God's word. Noah had to believe that this was no idle threat, that this was not a false alarm. He had to hear and he had to heed the warning. Regardless of what those around him may have thought of his radical actions, you know, apparently building the world's first boat in preparation for the world's first flood, we can only imagine how that went over with his neighbors. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7 says, By faith, by faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith, became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. There was but one way of salvation, and that one way of salvation required faith to trust in and to walk in that way, to seize hold of the offer of grace so as to escape judgment, which of course leads to the application of these events to our lives. One last verse from chapter 6 to help us consider that connection to our lives. 
Chapter 6, verse 17, having declared that everything on the earth shall die, God then says to Noah in verse 18, but I will establish my covenant with you. I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. I will establish my covenant with you. What is that covenant? Well, it's more than just this promise in chapter 6 that Noah and his family will survive if they obey God's instructions by faith regarding the ark and the animals. No, it's, it's about the additional promise, an additional promise that God makes after the flood. So let's look at, at that additional promise. One year and ten days after the flood began, a year and ten days later, Noah and his family disembarked from the ark. We read this in chapter 8, verse 20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord. Noah took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird, and he offered burnt offerings on the altar. Let's stop there. Okay, all but eight human beings have just been killed in judgment. And the first thing that the survivors do is to sacrifice some animals on an altar. Why? Well, why was a lamb offered as a burnt offering every single morning and every single evening in the tabernacle after God's people survived the plagues of judgment that fell on their enemies in Egypt? And after they emerged from the waters of the Red Sea on dry land, why every morning, every evening, did they offer a burnt offering to the Lord? It was the same thing. It's an expression of this redeemed people's need for their own sins to be atoned for through sacrifice. For their sins to be atoned for through the shedding of the blood of a substitute. Picking up verse 21 of chapter 8. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma of the sacrifice, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Well, that's interesting. So nothing has changed in that regard. That was the reason for the flood. So then neither the cataclysmic judgment of the many nor the gracious salvation of the few does anything apparently to fix the problem of our sin-tainted hearts. We have a new forefather from whom we all descend, a kind of second Adam in Noah, but sin remains. Even righteous Noah gets drunk and sinfully exposes his nakedness at the end of chapter 9. And like everyone who came before him, he too dies and the curse remains. So what then was the point of this dreadful cataclysmic judgment of all people on the earth? It's not merely to teach us about the judgment that our sins require and of our need for grace. It's that, but it's also to teach us about God's faithfulness to His promises. You see, the bigger question is not why God judged humanity, killing all but eight people in a flood. The bigger question is why God saved anybody. Why didn't He wipe out everyone? If God is determined to have a world filled with worshipers with whom He may dwell, as He gave us His vision in chapter 1, if that's His determination, if that's His vision, if that's His commitment, well, why didn't He just start over with a fresh batch, untainted by Adam's sin? It's because He delights to glorify Himself through the redemption of sinners. Because He's determined to eternally dwell in a world filled with worshipers, worshipers who have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. 
The reason that God preserved the lives of Noah and his family, and the reason that God then promised afterwards to never again decimate the human population by means of, of a flood, was because God had already made a promise. He'd already made a promise to Adam and Eve that an offspring of theirs would one day arise who would succeed where they had failed, who would defeat that ancient serpent, who would thereby lift the curse of sin and death upon creation, and that his victory would come at a cost to himself. Described in Genesis 3.15 as having his heel wounded as he uses it to crush the serpent's head. The Savior is wounded. So then at the end of Genesis chapter 9, the curse remains, but the promise of a Savior is preserved. That's the reason for sparing the lives of these eight people, because of the promise of a coming Savior who will lift the curse and redeem His people. This Advent season, we celebrate the fact that the promised Savior has come that He has succeeded where Adam and Eve and Noah and all others have failed, defeating that ancient serpent, living the sinless life that we have all failed to live, suffering the death that we all deserve for our sins in our place, rising from the grave in victory over the curse. There is but one way of salvation. Just as in Noah's day, so in our day, there is but one way of salvation, and it requires faith to trust in and to walk in that one way to seize hold of the offer of grace so as to escape eternal judgment. So beloved, do not ignore the warning. It's not an idle threat. It's not a false alarm. Hear and heed the warning. Place your trust in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And having entrusted your life to Christ, never lose sight of God's commitment that He displays here in Genesis 6-9. through his commitment to cover this world with worshipers with whom He may dwell, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. In the same way that He preserved the lives of those eight individuals on the earth for a reason, well, so too He is preserved and is sustaining your life on the earth for a reason. So go, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Go and make disciples of all nations. Go, tell it on the mountain over the hills and everywhere, go tell it on the mountain that Jesus Christ is born. The promise has been fulfilled. There is salvation in Him. Let us pray. Father, we thank You for the gift of Your Word. May each person here this morning hear and heed Your Word, recognizing the judgment that our sin requires and seizing hold of the glorious way of salvation that You have so graciously provided. Bless the preaching of your word. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.